Hey, y'all. Have you ever heard of Old Gods of Appalachia? Well, if you haven't, you have now. Let me tell you. This is a horror anthology podcast, and it is absolutely amazing. They have characters. They have actors. They have different people doing voiceovers. It is so ridiculously dope. Y'all got to check this out. Um... I'm, I'm like, I'm enthralled. I'm, I I can't stop listening to it. This shit is crazy. And I got to tell you, all the actors are, they're straight, they're queer, they're black, they're of color, they're male, they're female, they're they, thems, they, thems. They just, this thing is so diverse, man. And, and there's, there's actually some poets involved with this that I actually admire. So this is a big deal. Y'all got to check out Old Gods of Appalachia wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is your friend, Black Fluid Poet, a.k.a. John S. Blake. Coming to you live from my humble abode of books during this pandemic paradise where the quarantine still ain't cute, even though Texas has lost their minds. And so has Miami, for that matter. What were these people thinking? I mean, I mean, I mean, like, what were they thinking? Like, like, were they actually, like, is money that important? Like, if you, if you ever had a question about whether capitalism ever valued human life, just look at Texas and Florida. Like, why is Texas always the last one to like get it, you know what I mean? Like the Emancipation Proclamation was done and it took Texas like fucking years to finally abolish slavery. And then like all of us have been sequestered to our homes, lost money, been evicted, half killed our partners because we didn't know until quarantine that we really were not, in fact, in love. And then we all started to come out of this and slowly get vaccinated and restaurants, at least here in New Mexico, are still only open to less than 50% capacity. But there is Texas just doing Texas. Like it's bad enough they killed some of their citizens by allowing them to freeze to death in their homes and cars. But I mean, for real, just no mask. Just, you just you just out here raw dogging this illness. Like, you just going to spread UK and South African strains of this shit? Like, for real? Okay, Texas, I see you. Mm, 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 mm. Lord, I tell you. So, we're going to get back to discussing. Ooh, the tea is hot. <laughs> metaphorically and literally. So we're going to get back to talking about this journey of mine through manhood and what society taught me about how to be a man. Uh, episode 16, we ended with me telling you this poignant moment in an interaction with my father where I was probably five, six years old. 
I can't remember the exact age if I'm being completely honest, but I do remember learning how to play chess early with my dad. And my dad referred to the queen as your bitch. You being the king, you being the chess player, the queen was your bitch. And what does that make all the other pieces, right? I mean, pawns spend their entire existence on the chessboard, if not being sacrificed, then slowly killing themselves if they were personified to get to the other side of the board to someday be the king. Everybody wants to be the king. Everybody wants to be the king. It says a lot about manhood. I mean, even the queen with all her powers on the board, right? At the end of the day, the game goes on if she dies. But the king, anything happens to that dude, well... I mean, we just can't play anymore after that, right? Because without a king, there's just no game. It's always amazing. You know, the older I get and the more I learn, the more I look back on how patriarchal designs and systems are held up everywhere, like... I am not just talking about the United States. I just mean worldwide. How women are considered over and over again second-class citizens, if human at all, to some. So, I'd like to look at manhood as a chess game, right? Where in toxic masculinity... The object is always winning. Winning being obtaining whatever it is you want to overpower, to control the other pieces on the board, to keep safe and to conserve what is mine, and to show no mercy, right? My dad, my dad was a hustler. He, my dad couldn't remember his own social security number. My dad never, ever collected a paycheck. Ever in his life. Not even a paper route as a boy. Like, never worked for somebody at a market. Um, you know, never delved into like flipping burgers as a teenager. My dad never worked for anyone. And he prided himself in that. I mean, granted, everything he did was illegal. But you couldn't tell him he wasn't his own man. And now we're getting into these cross sections of race and class. And ultimately, though, every man, at least in my dad's generation, Dreamed of someday being at the top of something. And my dad was one of the best pimps, drug dealers, numbers runners, gamblers, hustlers, and quote-unquote 
ladies' man. And all the pieces on the chessboard are always checking back on the king, you know, wanting to know where the king is, if the king's safe. You know, if your king is exposed, well, then the pieces have to start retreating back to protect, right? And for a long time, my mother, the queen, my mother, who he referred to as his bitch, protected him. Never told me so many things that would, God forbid, emasculate him or even for his children to see him in a bad light, in a bad light. My mother never told me about all the women. My dad never told me about all the women, but even as a child, I knew. I knew because I used to play chess with my dad out in Midtown Manhattan in front of this, um, actually a, a well-known place before it was changed. It was a chock full of nuts, coffee shop, cafe, diner um, in Midtown. Now, I couldn't tell you where it is now because that was decades ago when they went out of business. But there's even a scene of that particular chock full of nuts store in the movie Escape from New York. And uh, my dad and I, we'd play chess. My dad used to play chess for money on that corner. And he would make a lot of money. My dad actually played chess for sometimes as much as $100 a game. And even today, that sounds like a substantial amount of money. But what you have to remember is that I'm talking about the mid-70s. When you could get a brand new car for under $1,000. You know, where a pack of cigarettes was 75 cents. My dad was playing chess for $100 a game. Now, he and my mom split when I was about two, three years old. And uh, my dad was playing chess for $100 a game while my mother struggled in a two-bedroom apartment in the projects. And we lived on whatever she could scrounge up. She eventually started hustling herself, opened up an after-hours joint, was part owner with another woman named Joyce. But eventually she got out of that business because it got really dangerous. But I will tell you, I will never forget the rage I felt as a child seeing my father with hundreds of dollars. My dad had this wad of money, all in $100 bills, playing chess on the street while my mother didn't know what we were going to do for food, borrowing $5 from a neighbor. And even though I was so young, you know, I'm still talking five, six, seven years old, I knew that my mother needed money and I knew my dad had a lot of it. And, you know, if I asked my dad, you know, do you love mom? He'd say, I love her very much. And if I asked my mom, she loved my dad. She said, oh, I loved your father very much. Loved E.D. And I couldn't wrap my head around how two people who loved each other couldn't be together. 
I'll tell you why they split up later. But I reg- I I digress. So we were we were outside playing chess and women would regularly walk back and forth in and out of this cafe down the street. You know, it's midtown Manhattan. And in the middle of our conversations, in the middle of playing chess, my dad would look up, see a pretty woman and go, hey, baby, you're looking good today. How you doing, baby? Oh, come on. Don't be like that. Come on, at least smile. And all the men standing around watching the chess game would laugh. And there were other chess boards and other players out there as well. And it would happen every, I don't know, it, you know, I mean, it's, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I would say it was probably every two minutes, you know, maybe less, every time an attractive woman walked by. Didn't matter race. It barely mattered age. And I, I didn't understand... Because, you know, when you're a child, pretty is the face, right? You see a pretty face, you say, wow, they're pretty. Um, you know, you see handsome, you see a good-looking boy, and you see a good-looking boy in the face. And I didn't understand why when the woman walked away, my dad was still staring at her, even though she was past being able to see her face. And he would say, damn, she's fine. And in my head, you know, What's fine? The back of a head? Like, I didn't understand what he was still looking at, you know. Of course, I know now. But, and then we'd, we'd go in the coffee shop. And my dad would buy me some candy and get himself a coffee. And the woman behind the counter, I'll never forget this. I said to her, hi. And she said, hello. And I said, you're really pretty. And she said, thank you. And then she smiled and my dad said, yeah, you learning, son, you learning. See that, see that smile on her face? That's right. That's right. And then she kind of rolled her eyes and went back to work and he took me outside and the woman came outside and said, is this your son? He said, yeah, that's my son, man. I love my son. And I didn't know back then that I was a pawn and she was somebody else's queen. And somehow my dad wanted to win. And I didn't know at the time that him telling her that he's, this is his son, this pretty looking almost white boy, that that was an in, you know. And then women started walking by and I remember him Saying, hey, baby, hey, baby, my son thinks you're cute. And she would look over and all of a sudden they would stop. And they would go, oh, this is your son. Oh, hi, what's your name? And I'd say, John. And then I'd look at my dad and go, she is pretty, daddy. He goes, yes, she is. You want to help me take care of my son? And she would, "Ah," and walk away. And then my dad would watch them walk away. Like he enjoyed watching them leave. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it until I was in my, not even in my 20s. I didn't get it until I was 
in high school. I understood then. I understood this feeling that would come over me, this desire of not necessarily admiring. Like you go to a museum and you admire art. And I've heard a lot of guys, myself included, use that bullshit of looking at women like you're admiring art. But the truth is, most men don't even know how to admire art. Because manhood, at least of the toxic variety, doesn't allow you to admire. When, when I admire something now, at this age, I understand that it is not mine. And I make that distinction that it's not mine. Yet, and still, when I admire it, it's almost as if I subconsciously give that thing permission to exist in all of its glory even though it's not mine. And I say even though because it's a, it's a consolation. Even though I don't own that thing, God, I can't help but admit it's beautiful. Because it not being in my possession takes away from its beauty, right? Because I'm the king. And in high school, I remember, not even high school, I would say middle school. Yeah, I would say middle school is when I started to notice a girl's body. And there was something about a girl's body that I remember my friends and I, we would go, damn, man, she fine. Yeah, she fine. And then somewhere in there, the the conversation developed further. And it was, damn, she fine. I wouldn't mind smacking that ass. And none of us really knew when the shift came, but all of a sudden it was funny. Like none of us have had sex yet. Most of us hadn't seen the sex act yet. But we just knew we wanted to hold this thing of beauty. Mind you, I'm saying thing on purpose. Because, I, you know, I think at 13... The idea of humanity, the idea of one's humanness didn't occur in my generation. I would hope that mindfulness and, you know, conscious thinking is something that we're talking to kids about now, that at least they're learning through social media at least. But back then, there was just this possession to be had. And if I go back even further, I can remember cartoons like Pepe Le Pew. Man, I watched one of those cartoons on YouTube the other day. And I was like, shit. Shit. I thought that was how you were supposed to be. I think a lot of men who grew up, who had the same childhood I had, our innocence was tweaked and stretched and shaped into toxic masculinity so young, we didn't even see it coming. It was like that deck of cards that I know I've spoken about before. You know, the first card came off of innocence watching cartoons. 
And Pepe Le Pew couldn't admire this female skunk or this black cat that he mistook for a female skunk. And he spent the entire episode chasing this female skunk who pushed and prodded and slapped him. And he was like, oh, you're playing hard to get? I love you. And he would grab her and kiss her and she would push and move. And so even as a boy, I can remember joking around with friends, both boys and girls in a park, and grabbing the girl who I thought was pretty and giving her a kiss. And even though she was mad, all of us boys slapping each other five and, you know, ha ha about it. And she's walking away angry, hurt, vulnerable, feeling invaded. And it was just boys being boys. And at 13, it went from, damn, she's fine, to, damn, she's fine, I wouldn't mind slapping that ass, to slapping girls' asses in the hallway. I'm feeling, there's this pause, and I apologize for the pause, but I'm feeling a lot of shame and guilt, and justifiably so. Because even though we were quote-unquote just kids or just boys, somewhere during that whole process, we knew damn well we had no business doing what we were doing. But the excitement was in being at that moment kings, taking possession of things, winning. We wanted to slap her ass, so we did. And it got to a point to where there was a reputation around certain boys at school that, you know, girls would have to walk backwards away from them. This was my transition into manhood. This is what I was becoming. Not knowing why I was desiring these girls yet, not understanding where it was coming from, but just knowing that nothing happens when you put your hands on girls, even when they don't want you to. You know, teachers might catch it and be like, hey, 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 go to class. But you didn't get suspended for it. You didn't get detention for it. Teachers rolled their eyes and, you know, blamed girls for wearing jeans that are so damn tight. Maybe if they didn't wear those jeans, boys wouldn't be running up on them like that. And girls would get yelled at and the boys would laugh. And we'd win. We'd win over and over and over again. Now, I did tell you in the last episode that there would be, you know, that, that last episode I told you about the trigger warning. I let everybody know that this was going to be uncomfortable subject matter, especially for those women who have experienced a sexual assault. 
And I beg of you, if this is too hard, don't listen. But if you know a son, a nephew, or any self-identifying man, this is the conversations that we need to have. It's time. It's gone on for too long. And this is about accountability. This is about no more excuses. This, is a, this isn't going to be the, well, we were just kids. Well, it's society's fault. No, I'm telling you that at the ripe old age of 13, I knew what I was doing was wrong. But since I wasn't suffering any consequences, I got worse. And having people around me, my age, my gender, who enabled the behavior, girls who had no one to turn to because it was her fault for wearing those clothes, or maybe if she was in class, it wouldn't have happened, or, you know, stop trying to get attention from the boys and maybe they wouldn't be there doing that to you, or a hundred other things. The bottom line is, even at 13, I knew damn well what I was doing was wrong. But we were kings. We were kings. And everybody saw the chess game happening. And just thought to themselves, that's how the game is played. This is just how things work. My father, woman after woman after woman, excuse me, miss, excuse me, miss, I'm not feeling too well. You walking by looking so fine, I think I'm having a heart attack. Can you come check, check my heart, come feel my heart? Hey, baby. Hey, baby. Oh, how you gonna walk past me looking that fine, ain't even gonna say hi back. Come on, girl. Damn, lady, is your day that hard? You can't even smile, which your husband ain't treating you right. Come over here, I'll treat you right. Mm, mm, mm. Now you know you're too young to be up on this side of town by yourself. Where your mama at, girl? Come here, let's go find your mama together. On and on and on. Playing chess. And ogling women. Wanting to possess them. Always wanting to win. I lost my virginity at 14 to a girl named Amelia, who was 16, who my mother kept telling me time and time again was a slut, in her words. And she didn't want me around that slut, Amelia. Amelia was, she was caught up. We all were. Getting high, drinking. I don't know where Amelia's family was. I I couldn't tell you. But she was bad. She was bad, not in sinner bad or immoral bad, but she was bad off like she didn't have parents worrying about her. She didn't have a mother to go looking for her in the street and drag her ass home. And God knows what happened to her. But I remember Amelia was dating this 30-year-old man. I say dating because I'm talking to you from the perspective of a 14-year-old boy. Today, we would say 
Amelia was being sexually assaulted by a 30-year-old man, manipulated and exploited, trafficked to his friends because Amelia liked to get high and Amelia liked the attention and Amelia had nowhere else really to go. But Amelia and I hung out and I crushed on her, man. I had such a crush on her. She was she was a white girl. I lived in an Italian neighborhood. And there was like maybe five black girls in the whole area. But Amelia had this jet black hair. And full lips and this really soft skin. And she was just... Sweet. She was really sweet. Very pretty. She always talked to me. Now I wasn't. I wasn't full of a lot of game. And I didn't have a lot of money. You know my mom was struggling. And. um, But Amelia would like. Actually hang out with me and talk. And I had a crush on her. And one day I kissed her. And she kissed me back. And we just kept kissing. And. This went on for like weeks. And then one night we were laying on a bed together at this other kid's house. And hands were everywhere for both of us. And we were into each other. But then at some point, there was something I wanted to do. And she was like, no, no, we can't, we can't. And I kept saying, come on, come on. Now this is long before the topic of date rape came up. This is the early, early 80s. This is even before the AIDS, uh, the spread of AIDS and even the discussion of AIDS had come up. And um, she just kept saying, no, we can't, we can't, we can't do this, we can't. And she laughed and she giggled and, you know, I was like, come on, come on, come on. And eventually she gave in and we had sex for the first, I had sex for the first time. And now I'm 50 years old looking back on the first time I sexually assaulted someone. And I didn't know. And now I look back on giving up my virginity during the first time I sexually assaulted a girl. 14 years old. But there was also something else, right? Like Amelia liked me and she wanted me to like her. So she didn't want to come off like a slut. She didn't want to say she wanted to have sex. or She didn't want to say she wanted to keep going. And there we were. Two kids trapped in a fucking ball of confusion with no opportunity to sit down with our parents and have honest conversations about sex. And here we are figuring out this fucking thing that in hindsight now, you know, being 50 years old, looking back on a 16-year-old girl that's been having sex with a 30-year-old man and his friends, getting high, who was probably sexually assaulted long before I got there, who saw what we did as normal. And me growing up with this toxic-ass dad who was sometimes there, sometimes not, and a mother who qualified girls as sluts and good girls. Here we are in a bed together, trying to like each other. 
and it was so hard. And even though I knew I was being sneaky, I believed that that was the only way boys had sex with girls. I believed that no girl wanted to have sex or they didn't want to admit that they wanted to have sex. And I think about Amelia and how I was probably just another fucking scar. A kid who, for so many other intensive purposes, was a good kid. At least outside of sex and affection and but I still had that drive when she said no and both of us were aroused this was the game and I wanted to win And you know, when this uh, when this podcast ends, what I don't want, and I'm asking you, please, do not message me telling me it's okay. Do not message me and give me excuses about how I was so young. Because I think we're at a point now in society where we all know that that's bullshit. And yes, it was a long time ago. And yes, we weren't having these discussions. But I am telling you, at 14 years old, I know, I knew then, I've known this whole time, and I know now that I should have stopped, gotten up, buttoned her shirt, pulled her bra back down on her pants. I mean, her bra back down on her breast buttoned her pants back up, kissed her on the cheek, and said, okay, we don't have to. Good night, guys. Hey, y'all. Your fam, Black Fluid Poet. Check it out. If you... Love this podcast. I want to thank you for favoriting the podcast because it means the world to me. However, the way I can get more advertisers is to have more subscribers. If advertisers um, see that um, I have a lot of subscribers, they will be more willing to give me opportunities to advertise for them. So in order for me to get these ads, I need to get to a decent amount of subscribers. So you come here to anchor.fm and you go to support and you can pick 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99. Please feel free to pick 99 cents. I I am overjoyed at anyone who wants to support my dream of getting this podcast taking off. You know what I'm saying? So please just consider it. If I could get a thousand subscribers, I could get out of this poverty thing. You know what I'm saying? Because yo. The struggle is real. Y'all take care.